HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. This week, it's the season finale of Meet and Three. We're following up our episode about youth with a look at age and how aging affects life on farms and in kitchens. At the the most basic level, we need people to grow food for a growing global population. The question of planning for retirement or old age as a cook, it's almost one that doesn't exist bizarrely until it's too late. We also have a story about a food that might be older than you think. A recent archaeological finding might have CrossFitters everywhere reevaluating their diets. Plus, a story about one of Atlanta's most historic and risque landmarks. There are dancers that have been there 20 and 30 years. Don't miss our season finale of Meat and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking all about consolidation within the ag industry as this trend continues to intensify. We're going to talk about what the repercussions are for farmers, consumers, and our broader food system. Joining me to unpack this issue today is Jim McDonald, the chief of the Structure, Technology, and Productivity Branch at the USDA's Economic Research Service. He's also the co-author of a report that came out this spring titled Three Decades of Consolidation in U.S. Agriculture, and I'm so pleased that it has brought him to the show today. Jim, welcome to Eating Matters. Uh, Thank you. Happy to be here, Jenna. So happy to have you. Okay, so just to kind of give us a sense before we dig into this report and consolidation within not only um, farming sizes, but also within agribusiness, um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the ERS in general, where it sits within the agency and what the overall mission is? Yeah, um, the Economic Research Service is uh, one of oh, 15 to 20 agencies that make up the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, one guys or another, we go back to the early 1920s in our history. 
Our job is providing, as the name implies, economic research and reporting on food, agriculture, resource, and rural issues uh, for the United States. And how long have you been studying um, consolidation in general within your current role? Uh, I've been in this particular position for 18 years, since 2001. I started at the Economic Research Service in 1980. So you know what you're talking about. I've been doing this for quite a while. (laughs) Um, Awesome. So, okay, so you just have a new report um, out. And, you know, this this past spring, then the findings were like, I have to say, sort of fairly surprising to me and kind of were counter to um, maybe some misconceptions that I had had in the past. So do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about, you know, how you – came to author this report, co-author this report, like, you know, what kind of, what was the motivating um, impetus for the drafting of this report? And then we can talk a little bit about the major findings. Sure. Um, I've been doing work on industry structure, whether it's agriculture or agribusiness or some other related uh, things for most of my career. And part of my job at ERS is to help manage a large annual farm survey. Uh, So we are out there every year talking to, surveying farmers, but also touring a lot of farms. So we have a pretty good sense of uh, changes going on in the nature of technology and the nature of how farms are organized over time. We've done a lot of reports on very specific parts of the industry, uh, like uh, raising broilers or like dairy farms. Mm Uh, But we wanted to do, we thought this was a good time to do a good uh, summary piece, taking advantage of the many uh, surveys and data resources available at the department and give a good overview, in this case, as the title implies, of the continuing shift towards much larger farms over the last three decades. Mm -hmm. And and that that was the indeed one of the main findings, right? That that consolidation continues and the farm sizes continue to grow? Yeah. I'd say there's sort of two uh, big messages on consolidation. One is that for crops, whether it's field crops like corn and soybeans or fruits and vegetables or uh, berries or tree nuts, what you see over three decades is a fairly steady shift Uh, towards larger farms. It goes on persistently over time. It goes on across the country, and it goes on across almost all uh, crop commodities. And that that becomes important later when we think about what drives those changes. Um, In livestock, it's a little bit different in that you see uh, some periods of very little change. And in fact, in one important part of the livestock industry, which is cattle raising, we see very little change over three decades. But we also see in more concentrated periods of time fairly dramatic, even revolutionary changes in how those businesses are organized. I would say between the 1990s and 2010, we saw revolutionary changes in the hog industry in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we see, even going on today, dramatic shifts towards much larger farms in dairy. And so uh, in livestock, as compared to crops, you get intense periods of dramatic change uh, that does not occur across all, all livestock species, but, but certainly has affected most of them in this time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, so yet, 
So that's kind of like the, the broader overview. Yep. Um, so then in terms of like more specifics, the the size of the of the farm. So there's farms are getting larger, yet you found that uh, family owned yep. and operated farms still account for an enormous percentage. Is it ni- yeah. 90%? And that's all, yes. And that's off uh, 90% of production, uh, okay. about 99% of farms. Oh. Uh, and that is often um, surprising to many people outside of agriculture. Yes. And one way that I would uh, summarize that is to say that the way in which technologies changed over time in agriculture is that it allows a single farmer or farm family uh, to manage more acres or more animals. Mm-hmm. And most most of agriculture is still dominated by um, uh, a family, uh, whether it's a husband and wife or whether it's uh, several siblings involved in the business. For most of agriculture, that's still who owns and operates the farms, and families still provide about half of all the labor involved in agriculture as well. And that's still a very distinctive feature of, of the business and makes it stand out compared to other American industries. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so just to be crystal clear, just to really, really um, put, um, you know, make, make a point, 99% of farms are yep. family-owned. Yep. And that is across all, um, you know, production types. So that's that. does that include commodity crops, vegetable, specialty crops, livestock? It'll vary, it'll vary across commodity types. And let me just quickly say, when we say it is a family farm, what we mean is that the operators, the people who make the day-to-day decisions on that farm, also together with people that they are related to, mm-hmm. own the farm business. So it's own, the notion is owned and operated. Mm-hmm. Now... Um, if you look at field crops, corn, soybeans, cotton, things like that, mm-hmm. um, close, not all, but close to 100% of production is family businesses. Those are completely dominated, I would say, by family businesses. Mm-hmm. If you look at fruits and vegetables, non-family businesses, which are often um, – a family that got really big and successful and now owns a lot of farms that other people operate for them. Mm-hmm. Those non-family businesses probably account for a quarter of all fruit and vegetable production. So 75% is families, 25% is non-family businesses. Okay. In livestock, it gets more complicated, and here's the reason why. If you think about uh, pork or hog production works the same way in this sense. Uh, someone like Tyson's, a large corporation, mm-hmm. um, they own 50 or 60 hatcheries that produce the eggs, that, are, uh, that produce the chicks that are going to be raised into, uh, say, broilers for meat in the case of chicken. Um, Tyson's will contract with family farms to raise those chickens for them. They will contract with other family farms to, to uh, produce the eggs that go to their hatcheries. Mm-hmm. So most of the production in things like uh, hogs and chickens are going on on family farms that contract with some major corporation to raise the animals for them. So corporations, in particularly in hogs and poultry, have a much stronger 
uh, role of directing production than they have in the rest of agriculture. But production in that sen- in those businesses is still largely carried out on family operations. But isn't that just? I mean, they're sort of carrying out the. Um, the, you know, they are sort of restrained by the demands of the industry and the, um, you know, specific corporation that they're sure, contracting those, with. Those, it's not those firms have dictate. a lot more of a directive <laughs> role right. than any buyer or supplier does in field crops. On the other hand, that family business that's raising chickens is likely also raising some field crops, that is, chickens, uh, contract chicken production is one of their businesses. Mm-hmm. They may raise field crops as well. Uh, they may be bringing in money. They may raise cattle. So they may have a mix of family businesses, and they've gone and invested in the chicken houses, a substantial investment. And so they're not, they're not actually even close to being, say, employees of a Tyson's. Although, yes, Tyson's exercises a great deal more direct control over decision-making in, in pork and poultry than firms do in other parts of agriculture. Right. I mean, because if they, I mean, those are the, the major buyers, right? I mean, is there even a marketplace? Well, they even, they're not really buyers. They own the chickens. Oh, they, oh, right. Okay. They give, they give the chicken, yes. the chicks to the farmer to raise. Yes. So they're literally just doing the growing. Yeah, that's for right. a period of time. Um, okay, so... So why do you think that there is this sort of misperception um, of the industry? You know where we at, where we're yeah. at now. I think that in general, there's a there's a thought that small family farmers, vegetable growers, you know, the farmers who sell in roadside stands, like those are, um, you know, becoming going out of business more and more, and um, you know, kind of being bought by and taken over by these larger corporations? Why do you think that there well, is Yeah, that I'd first idea? say you're partly right. I mean, larger, I call them small and mid-sized family farms are going out of business. Uh, what they're being replaced by or, or is larger family farms. Um, in terms of the misperception, that I, I'm not sure. Um, this... We, we we produce something like this on family farms for 15 or 20 years, and we haven't been noticeably successful in changing everybody's opinion. Mm-hmm. I will say, I my, my current speculation on this is, um, if you look at, I, I start with looking at sort of advocacy groups in Washington, and one of the things that left and right advocacy groups agree on, I think, involved in agriculture, is that they really dislike farm subsidies. Mm-hmm. And I, as I read their reports, their reports consistently say uh, payments are going to corporations. They right. think that's a better selling point than saying that payments are going to um, large, affluent farm families. Okay. They, so they'll consistently give you that message. And then when I look at other writers right, who don't usually work on agriculture but may have a political slant, they write for a political magazine, say, whether it's left or right, mm-hmm. I think they tend to look at those reports from the advocacy groups and say, well, they all refer to corporate farms, so it must be true. And then I think that reporters who uh, are writing for you know, typical major media who themselves don't do a lot on agriculture right. – look on that whole environment and get the message from them. 
So in that sense, we fail since they don't really pick up on what we're saying all that much. We occasionally get people to change their mind. But, well, but, but I think it does have to do with uh, motivated argument from advocacy groups. I think that play, plays a role. At least that's my guess these days. And and just to be clear, when we're talking about ownership, owned and operated, yeah. um, what is that? What does that really mean? Because you've written when that I a say, lot of farm land is rented, right? Exactly. When I say owned, I mean they own the business. The um, so any any farm business, even if they rent all their land, they're going to some have some assets. Okay. They're going to have cash, yeah. or they're going to have some equipment they own. Um, so they're going to have some types of assets in that business. And so we mean that they, they own the assets of that business. Um, they may rent, and, and large farms frequently rent most of their farmland. Mm-hmm. And that land may be owned by a wide variety of different types of people. Okay. Um, and, I mean, I think that this is, this, is, this is quite common, right, to have, you know, farmers renting a yeah. lot of the land that they farm. Do you have any sense of how prevalent that is? Um, yeah. Can you give us some numbers? I would numbers say... Cropland is more likely to be rented than other types of land, and land for field crops is more likely to be rented than, say, vineyards. But what I know about is uh, field crops, and I, our, I think our most recent number was 55% of cropland is rented. Wow. Now, most of that is still individuals often descendants of farmers or often widows of, of farmers of the past or sometimes retired farmers who are renting out that land um, to, uh, to currently active farms. I had expected to see a substantial growth in institutional ownership of farmland, either by corporations or by other types of financial institutions. In our most recent survey of land, which was in 2014, I was surprised to find that while it had grown, it was still a small fraction of cropland. I think maybe 5%, 5 to 6% of cropland was owned by large-scale institutional owners. Wow. See, that is exactly, that is not what I would have expected. <laughs> I was, as I said, I was surprised. Partly, I had run into people from, say, uh, Tycreft, Ty the big, Pension, uh, university pension fund, and they told me they had $5 billion invested in farmland. And that sounded like a great deal of money to me, and it is. But if you look at the total value of U.S. farmland, uh, which runs into trillions, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not a big share of it. And even their ownership, which is, you know, on the range of close to a million acres. Well, total farmland in the United States is somewhere around 900 million acres. Yeah, wow. So it still doesn't add up to uh, a large fraction of farmland, although I think it is, it's growing and there are people that are looking for ways to try to make that work. So far, it has not exploded, and even I was surprised at that. I expected to find a lot more of it. Right, and then in terms of kind of um, like financial institution and more institutional control, um, within that, as you said, 5%, within that 5%, is that, um, you know, in more heavily in certain industries or certain um, like crops, or is it kind of spread throughout different kind of production? I have to say I don't have a really good sense of that. Um, my, I, I would, if I had to guess, I would say it's more common in some high-value California land and fruits and vegetables. But I don't, uh, I don't really have a good estimate of that. Um, can we talk? I want to. Can you walk us through what are some of the, you know, 
you know, what are the ways that like consolidation actually happens? Can you kind of give us a test case so we can um, have like a rounder picture of what what it actually looks like? Uh, on a um, yeah, in farming. Yes. Yes. Sorry. I'll tell yes. you. All right. <laughs> We're going to talk about some of these corporate mergers in a minute. Yeah, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, frequently. I can't hire anybody anymore that knows anything about farming. And so we take them on farm tours okay. in the summer. Yeah. And what we get is sort of the personal story, history of the farm. And the frequent story one hears is, well, uh, say, my brother and I and our wives, we wanted to be in the farming business and take over our parents' farm. Mm-hmm. But both the existing parents' farm, you know, wasn't going to support us all. In addition, we saw opportunities where the four of us, trust, four trained managers of farming who know a lot about farming and trust each other, can make more money with a larger business. So we went to the bank. Mm-hmm. And I was a little nervous because we we're going to the bank to ask for a million or two million or five million dollars. And we and then it takes good, takes you into several different um, directions. On the crop part, it might be, well, we got opportunities to rent the land from a farmer we knew down the road, so we got 500 acres there. And then we started reaching out to other farms where they had retired or were thinking of getting out of the business, and we bought 500 and were renting 2,500 acres, say, 2,500 acres across several counties. We might also have decided to go into raising hogs under contract or raising uh, poultry under contract, so we reached out to the bank and we began that business. You'll also hear some strange story. well, to me strange, uh, several times I've met people who were in the potato business, they expanded the potato business, but you can only... Uh, plant potatoes about once every three years. You need rotation crops in order to fight off the pests that affect potatoes. Mm-hmm. And so I had several times run into farmers who said, well, a good rotation crops would be corn and alfalfa for potatoes. So we went into corn and alfalfa and we decided because we had all that corn and alfalfa to become a large-scale dairy farm too. Okay. And so you f- And so the story often is people recognizing that the technology, either often the equipment, is there to enable them to manage a lot more acres. Secondly, they've got a set of managers who trust each other, often related, who can run this business. And so they um, they make these types of decisions over time. Now, I hear my uh, the battery on my phone going, so I'm okay. going to switch to the other phone here just a sec yeah we're just going to take a really quick commercial break and when we get back we will continue our discussion with jim mcdonald from usda stay tuned today's program was brought to you by wisconsin cheese What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Uplands Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. 
I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sierchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Sutari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. We're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Jim McDonald from the USDA about his recent report titled Three Decades of Consolidation in U.S. Agriculture. Um, Jim, before the break, we were talking about what, you know, how consolidation actually happens. And I'm wondering, you know, just to step back for a minute, what you think the driving force is um, behind consolidation? Uh, yeah, there's a number of, of different ones, but the big driving element, in my view, is probably tech, technology, and in particular, technology that allows farmers or farm families to manage more acres or animals. On the acres side, if you think about um, the equipment farmers use, tractors, sprayers, planters, harvesters, all of that equipment has over time gotten bigger and faster. Mm -hmm. So that a farmer can cover a field with whatever task it is in a lot less time than it took to cover that field in the 1970s or 1980s. That means with that extra time, well, the farmer could spend more time with the family. They could work off the farm and earn money from working off the farm. Or they and their family and partners could manage a bigger farm business. And I think on the crop side, that's been a driving force. Um, simply that farmers can really manage a lot more acres with the equipment available today mm -hmm. than with the equipment that was available in the 70s and 80s. On the livestock side, there's just been a series of developments uh, towards uh, more automated feeding and watering equipment and systems within houses, equipment, that enables you to better manage the environment, the climate within those houses, and similarly then allows a farmer to manage larger uh, flocks or herds of animals. So I think that's really a driving force and is likely to continue to be a driving force in consolidation in agriculture. And do we think that this is going to be more beneficial for larger farms, or do we think that smaller farms will be able to gain greater benefits? That, that's a really interesting question. Um, what I've described so far, field crops, bigger, faster pieces of equipment, uh, work best in big, flat fields and in areas where there are contiguous fields. Mm -hmm. That means the Corn Belt, the Great Plains, the Mississippi Delta. It's much less effective in the east where you have small, hilly fields separated from one another, often by woods. Mm -hmm. And you're not able to take account of those uh, large-scale pieces of equipment. There, as a result, consolidation has proceeded much more rapidly in those major agricultural areas in the Midwest uh, than it has particularly um, in the Northeast. Now, there are pieces of equipment 
that are just emerging now that potentially favor smaller farms. There are uh, uh, equipment designed for fruit and vegetable production, small autonomous, that is not driven, but auto-guided weeders, planters, sprayers that would work on small farms. And there is a big movement uh, emerging in dairy farming towards robotic milking equipment that seems to be adopted mostly on mid-sized dairies from 100 to 200 to 300 cows. Mm-hmm. And those have the potential of favoring smaller operations compared to larger ones. But the major force uh, in terms of technology has been that it's favored larger farms and therefore has favored consolidation into larger farms. And it has kind of, it has it sort of ushered in a wave of specialization in a way that we haven't seen before? Oh, that's also a good question. Um Farming has become more specialized over time, whereas 30 years ago, a field crop farm might have four or five crops that they produce. These days, it's two or three crops, Mm -hmm. and livestock operations are much more likely to be specialized towards one species or even one stage in the production of those species, along with some uh, crops. So farming has gotten more specialized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, I think uh, I, I, I'm less sure of this, but I think technology has probably played a role in that greater specialization as well. I want to talk about the dairy industry in, in particular. Can you remind me of the mm-hmm. um, you know the the rates of consolidation? You, you said that they have increased oh. dramatically in the dairy industry. Yeah, quite and dramatic. I, and I in wa- the 1980s. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I just, you know, I would love to talk about that. And also, I mean, the dairy industry is kind of in, um, there, a lot of dairy farmers are really hurting right now. And so if you could yep. just sort of draw the line between, uh, you know, the parallels between consolidation and, and okay. where we are now. Uh, back in the 1980s, um, half the dairy cows in the country were on herds of, were in a herd of 80 or more cows and half were in herds of 80 or less. So the typical herd size, if you think of it in that way, was 80 cows in a herd. And, and when I was a teenager in the 60s, that was a large herd, right, 80 cows. Right. Today, that equivalent size herd uh, is about 1,000 cows. Those are really big dairy farms. Right. And where the investment is yeah, going really in dairy farming is in even larger herds of three or 4,000 cows on a farm, so dramatically larger than what ha- what we had back in the 1980s. On average, those larger farms have much lower costs of milk production than the smaller farms, so that today, when many small and mid-sized farms are under great financial pressure, and wait, just to jump in, front- why split. why are there costs? Is it just like you know, like the economies of scale? Um, yeah. You know, wh- okay, there, so they. There are big economies of scale in the milking function and in feed provision for for the cows. Um, And I think they have also, I think the modern style barns we use uh, probably also display some scale economies in um, just in housing and maintaining the cows. So there are substantial cost advantages arising from those things. And and when we talk about 3,000 cows, just to be able to visualize that, these are not, let me just go out on a limb here and say, like, these are not necessarily grass-fed cows. I mean, is, are we... Are we They're not me? grass-fed cows. <laughs> so most, these are major... Most of the animals today, probably 70%, are confined in the barn. They can move around. Right. They're not, like, confined in some little cage. Right. But they remain within a barn 
and all of their feed is purchased and provided. So they're not on pasture. Yeah. Uh, probably 25 to 30% of cows are still on pasture at some time. Uh, but I would say that number is shrinking over time. Okay. All right. That is unfortunate. Sorry. So, so I, I cut you off there. No, that's fine. Um, because, because of these big cost differences, very large dairy farms can make money and have strong incentives to expand mm-hmm. at the same time that smaller farms are losing money. And that is the big dilemma in dairy policy today. Um, steps that you might take to support smaller dairy farms uh, will often provide strong incentives for the larger farms to expand. And that's really been the dilemma of dairy policy now for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, those cost differences are stark enough uh, so that I expect this to continue. Um, these days, I think there's about 40,000 uh, dairy farms in the U.S. that sell milk. Mm-hmm. That's down from 75,000 about 15 years ago. I expect wow. it's going to continue declining uh, in, a fair, uh, in a noticeable fashion. Uh, the economics are uh, very powerful in favor of much larger farms. And I think more so than in any other part of agriculture. Uh, so I think we'll continue to see uh, those striking changes. And an out, uh, something you can sort of visualize from that is if you go through a dairy valley in Vermont or New York State, which is still ma- a major dairy production area, mm-hmm. compared, to that wo- compared to, say, five farms on that valley in the 1980s, you'll see a single... Uh, surviving farm. That farm likely produces more milk than the five produced in, uh, back in the 1980s. But that's what you sort of see um, visually. And what you also see visually is more forests because the pastures are going back to forest because those, farm, uh, those cows are largely are confined in the barn. So you see a, a striking visual change as well as a, a big change in how the industry is organized. Um, I think I'm going to need to have you back to talk more about, you know, we, I want to do a deep dive into um, the dairy industry. It's a, sure, happy a, to do it. of an obsession of mine. But, um, okay, so we, we have to move on because I've got like 15,000 other questions to ask you before we okay. wrap up this, this episode. But now I want to kind of shift and talk about the con- consolidation in agribusiness as we've seen, yep. um, you know, a a lot of this happening lately. And so can you just draw the relationship, you know, between the two, between the consolidation in farming and then consolidation in agribusiness? Like how does one affect the other? Uh, actually, uh, if at all, right. If at I all. think there was, uh, there was a major consolidation in meat packing in the 1980s. That is for firms that, uh, produce, uh, pork and beef. Mm-hmm. And that, I thought, was closely integrated with changes in farming. Um, that you built, you would build a big meat packing plant because you could count on uh, a steady supply of a lot of cattle from nearby cattle feedlots. Uh, same thing with hogs. You built hog, bigger hog and poultry plants because you had this whole network of bigger hog and poultry. Uh, farms supplying you with the animals. So I think on the livestock side, that those are closely connected. The consolidation actually is closely connected, but that largely occurred in the 80s and 90s. Okay. Uh, the mergers we see lately are 
really in the chemical and seed business in the late in um, the last couple of years. I don't think they have a lot to do with consolidation um, in field crops uh, per se. I think they're sort of independent mm-hmm. um, developments, uh, but they have been. Uh, important developments and important developments for sort of antitrust and competition policy around the world as well. Yeah. So, what are some of these? What are some of the, these the, um, these kind of mergers? I mean, obviously, the most recent one was the Bayer Monsanto merger, right? That went right. through. Um, and and- that was one of that was one of three big mergers. Uh, Bayer um, Bayer purchased Monsanto. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, Dow and Dupont merged, and then they then they split off the three different businesses. So they created a separate agriculture uh, seed and chemical business from the previous Dow and DuPont seed and chemical businesses, which is called Corteva. Uh, So there's that merger. And then Syngenta, which is a major uh, seed and chemical company, was purchased by uh, a Chinese firm, ChemChina, which was not really a major uh, player in the seed and chemical business. uh, business. It, w- it was a producer of uh, of generic um, uh, herbicides, but it purchased Syngenta. So those are three uh, major mergers in the, um, in the seed and chemical business in recent years, and they had they were subject to antitrust investigations globally because these countries, these firms produce all around the world. Mm-hmm. So it was a big, complex set of uh, of mergers and of antitrust investigations and of antitrust settlements at the end of the day. Those have been the big changes and may have big impacts looking out 5, 10, even 25 years. Um, and what what percentage of the marketplace in the, the seed and chemical marketplace do they... You know, do they have? I mean, these three. Well, that that's what makes it complex. On the chemical side, there are many, many agricultural chemicals. Um, there are some specialized firms that provide some chemicals, but these uh, these five, the Dow, Dupont, Bayer, Monsanto, and Syngenta, were five of what are known as the big six mm-hmm. chemical companies, and they together probably accounted for 80 to 85 percent of all agricultural chemical sales. Now, in particular chemicals, um, in some areas there was competition, and in other areas there may have only been three or four of these firms, and the merger would have left you with, say, one less. In seeds, which is um, what these firms do is they produce some seeds that are sold to farmers. Mm-hmm. They also produce traits that become bred into seeds. And they may either produce the seeds with those traits themselves or they license the traits to independent seed companies. So that's sort of a complicated story. But in genetically engineered seeds, mm-hmm. which in the United States are extremely important for corn, for soybeans, uh, for cotton, for sugar beets, and canola, uh, those firms account for all um, traits, all, all of the genetically engineered traits that are wow. in seeds sold in the United States. Uh, and Monsanto accounts for the lion's share of those, although Syngenta and DuPont certainly had significant seed businesses. So they were major players in those areas. Right. Uh, from the point of view of antitrust authorities, the concern was rather... Uh, a merger would lead to 
a reduction in the number of competitors from what might have been three in some markets down to two or even two to one. And they were particularly concerned with Bayer and Monsanto in cottonseed and somewhat less concerned in cornseed. So these are dominant players in seed and chemical markets. Right. Just out of curiosity, what was the sixth company? You said that the five, you know. The sixth company, which came to play a role, is a German chemical company named BASF. Yeah. Now, BASF uh, was not really active in the seed business, but they were a major producer of pesticides. Um, an outcome of the antitrust investigation is that the bear, most of the bear seed business and some of their pesticide business will be sold off to BASF. So BASF will now become a, a player in seed markets. Okay. Um, so, wow. So what are, I mean, there has to be some sort of market conditions that are maybe like ushering in this wave, or is this just sort of... I mean, if so, what are those market conditions? You, or is you're this asking just, yeah. why you... Yeah, yeah. like, it, I mean, ha, what is what is going on that this is... This seems... Uh, I mean, that's, that's, a, yeah. that's a good question, and I think there's two, um, two possibilities. I think that there was strong pressure from investors um, to combine businesses and um, lim- and frankly, limit competition so as to try to make more money. Uh, it's the job of antitrust agencies, if they think that's the driver, uh, to oppose that. I think there's also a legitimate concern that there are major changes coming both in chemicals and with competing means of, um, uh, uh, of pest management um, that... That meant that these firms wanted to, uh, it led some people to believe that you needed to get larger scale in order to, um, in order to meet those challenges. Now, I'm, personally, I'm fairly skeptical of that argument. Right. Uh, but I have to say, there are also knowledgeable people who, who believe it. So, I mean, what would, what would some of the, you know, the competition be? Could this be a rise in organic uh, growing practices, or is that just, like, in no way, shape, or Oh, competition, or form? you know, there is interesting, there are very interesting things developing in the world of precision agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, there is equipment that is in the prototype stage now, that is, that is, it's not yet commercially available, but it might become that. Uh, that gives you a whole different way of applying pesticides. That is, some of this equipment, um, uh, which is developed by combinations of Silicon Valley and traditional equipment manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So envision um, uh, an old-time sprayer of pesticides, that piece of equipment, but it's got something attached to it now, and it goes down a row or several rows of cotton or corn. And what it's and the plant has just emerged. And what this piece of equipment is doing is rolling down the row, taking pictures in real time of all the plants. Some weed plants, some are say cotton or corn plants, as the case may be. It's using machine learning algorithms to identify whether the plant it sees is a weed or a cotton plant. If it identifies it as weed, it zaps it with the pesticide. The motto in these firms is spray the plant, not the field. What that promises to do is greatly reduce 
pesticide use, if it works, right. and may enable you to use uh, different specific types of pesticides uh, that are not the same pesticides that are used these days, with uh, usually combined with GE crops. So these are things that have a very real possibility of sharply disrupting um, the pesticide business. Yeah, I mean, and, for yeah. the better. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there are, that is in, in many ways the holy grail of precision agriculture developments for 15 years that are now on the cusp of being dramatically different from how we thought they were going to be. They offer the promise, yes of greatly reducing the amount of chemical application we need to do to control pests. Now, you know, it's reasonably skeptical about this until you actually see it in fields and in use. But it does have great promise and is real enough, I think, to be a potential real disruptor in the industry. I mean, I mean, hopefully, right? I think that anything yeah, that... <laughs> yeah. that... That would certainly be a way in which modern technology and Silicon Valley technology offers uh, many, many benefits. I think that's true. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So what is the the role in in terms of like regulating antitrust? That comes from the, yes. D, the DOJ and the FTC? Like what, what branch of yeah. government is well, kind of... They split responsibility across uh, different products. Mm-hmm. So in this case, seeds and chemicals, that's fallen to the Department of Justice, to the antitrust division. Mm-hmm. Uh, because these are global firms, there are antitrust agencies from the European Union, from Brazil, from India, from South Africa, that have all played actually significant roles um, in this, as well as actually many other countries involved in the investigations of them. Um, and their their focus is partly a traditional antitrust focus and partly a new one. The traditional focus is on will these firms, will the merged firms be able to raise price for their products? That mm-hmm. is, will it reduce competition in the market for these current uh, seed or chemical products? And that, that was a focus of these investigations as well. The and it found that it, that it won't. Issue, it won't right, raise prices. Me, yeah. And they, it found the findings were that it wouldn't, in fact... Cause an increase in the price. idea is to focus on typically what they'll do is they'll focus on those specific seed markets, say cotton seed in the United States or a vegetable seed, say that they sell in Israel, something like that, and uh, focus on the number of sellers and what the merger is going to do. If, if there's already seven or eight sellers, they don't much care. Okay. If there's only three or four sellers and the merger is going to combine them and reduce them to two or three or one, then they care. And they're going to look closely at remedies that maintain competition um, in that particular market. Okay. So that's, that's the primary focus that will go on on that price side. Okay. And then the second thing before I cut you the off. The second thing is, and this has become more important in general in antitrust the last 15 years, is these are these firms account for a lot of the research and development that, and innovation that goes on in pesticides. So the concern is, uh, will merging these firms lead them to invest less in research and development? And it w- it will, in theory, if the new innovations that they come out are largely now going to cannibalize their own products. 
So okay. if you produce a new pesticide, yeah. you're going to steal some business from rivals, but you may also steal it from yourself, and you're a lot less likely to invest in it then. That's a real concern if I've only got one or two or three sellers. If Again, if I've got five, six, seven, I don't so much care about it. Right. So that played a significant role in, in this investigation. Whether or not, uh, when, where would the cannibalization come through? come from this is can you just break that down a well from your existing products i have much yeah. if i'm thinking about spending a hundred million dollars to try to develop a new seed uh product and if i calculate that my new sales are going to come largely from the seeds i already sell right why that's okay. a lot less valuable to me right okay if on the other hand i have three rivals so that much of my new sales for my new product are coming from rivals then I'm going to, uh, then I'm much more likely to make that big investment. Okay. And okay. so that's the cannibalization story, and it becomes real if that merger is going to leave me with very few rivals left. And okay. that I think played an important role in um, the antitrust authorities' investigation in this time, trying to envision how the merger would affect research spending and innovation out into the future. And that was with ba- the, the, specifically with the Bayer Monsanto merger, which was the most recent one. It, it played a role in Dow Dupont as well, but specifically, it was a big deal in okay. the Bayer Dupont merger, and uh, I think played an important role in the settlement. I w- the merger went through, but they had to agree to sell off a number of assets of both of products and of research organizations, and also of some of their investments in in information technology, Hmm. in digital platforms. So um, I think much of that was aimed at trying to maintain competition um, in research and innovation in the business. So we talk a lot about, I mean, so that's, that's, you know, fascinating in terms of the effects and, and repercussions of, you know, for the industry overall. What about for consumers? Should... You know, should we be caring caring about these mega mergers happening? Um, and you know, how does it affect us in our daily lives? Yeah. Um, well, I, I take it back here to productivity growth in agriculture, which now for seven decades has been quite high. If you look um, in the fifties or at say the top. Uh, the top five industries in the United States in terms of productivity growth, agriculture would have been one of them. Mm-hmm. In the 1960s, there were four other industries, but agriculture was among the top five. It's the same thing in every decade. Agriculture has had very high productivity growth since since World War II, not before. Right. Much of that growth comes from uh, recent innovations related to research, uh, biological, chemical, and mechanical innovations largely that arise originally from public research, more and more these days from private research spending. Now, when you think about the impacts of that productivity growth, it ultimately gets reflected in lower prices for farm commodities, and those get transformed through ultimately into food prices. Mm -hmm. More and more now, though, I mean, 
agriculture is a fairly small part of food in terms of the costs of, of your food. Much more of it's incurred in processing and transportation. Mm-hmm. So productivity growth in agriculture in the last several decades has declining impacts on the prices you pay for your food, although it still is there. More importantly, what productivity growth in agriculture does is allow you to produce a certain amount of crops or livestock um, with fewer and fewer resources, less land, um, ultimately less chemicals if you do it on less land. And so there are increasingly an important element of productivity growth in agriculture is savings and resources that either gives us environmental benefits or uh, frees people, capital, and other things to go produce health care, uh, uh, information technology, other things that are growing importance in the U.S. economy. So the benefits actually pass through in a variety of different ways to us as consumers and as of users of resources. So it should concern uh, consumers, although it affects us in a fairly long time frame. All right. Well, I think that we are going to have to leave it there because we're out of time. But um, I had such a great time chatting with you. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and unpacking these fairly complicated issues in a way that was super fun and engaging. (laughs) So thank you. You asked good questions. It was a lot of fun to talk about it. Happy to do it anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm going to be calling you back about the dairy industry. (laughs) Sounds good, Jim. All right. Thank you, Jim. Um, all right, we're going to leave it there. Um, Jim McDonald, great guest. I want to give a big thanks also to our sponsors for their generous, generous support. And uh, thanks to my ever-patient and very supportive engineer, Matt Patterson. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.